The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, folks, we can go ahead and get started. There it is. Thank you, Chris. Let's get started. Grab your Bibles, please open them to the book of Daniel. Much to cover, not much time. We're 15 seconds in already. So yeah, open your Bible to the book of Daniel. This is our last major prophet in our overview series of the wisdom of the major prophets over the course of the summer. So congratulations, you've made it through. I, I trust and pray that the series has been fruitful and helpful to you in kind of piecing together the big ideas and themes of the Bible and this particular part of the Bible. The reason that we do these Old Testament sort of overviews is because a lot of times those are the parts of the book that we tend to skip through in our reading or not to pay as close attention to. They're a little more harder to understand, a little more archaic, got some history in the background that we're not so familiar with. And so it's easy to kind of miss the larger picture of what's going on. And so that was our aim over the course of this summer through the wisdom literatures and the major prophets was to help us understand what God is revealing about himself through these books and to string together a little more cohesive picture of what the Bible is trying to teach us from front to back. So if you've missed any, please feel free to go back um, and listen to some of those, and then we'll pick up where we left off uh, with the minor prophets and uh, sometime in another series. That being said, let's go ahead and begin with prayer, and then we'll turn to our study of God's Word. Father, thank you for the gift of faith and the family and the household of God. Again, I celebrate and rejoice in the addition to the number of the saints here at Foundation and pray, God, for conversions in greater numbers for your glory. We pray, God, that this room would be filled with worshipers of Christ who have come to hear and know the truth of the gospel through the preaching of the word, through the the sharing and the commending of the gospel from the members here, through the care and the character of those who walk with integrity before you in the world. We pray, God, that you would be able to move in such a way through those who sit under your word, who obey your word, who live for your glory, that this city and our neighborhoods and the world would be reached for the gospel. Would you move in our hearts so that we would desire that? We pray, God, for our time now and the remainder of it, that it would be spent in humble service and worship to you, in praise of your glory, that the time we spend in reading and studying your word would be fruitful and edifying to our lives. We pray now by your spirit that our eyes and our minds would be opened and enlightened to know the truth, to see it, and that by your spirit, again, Lord, we would be moved and made to walk in light of it through obedience and humility. So we give all this to you as always and pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Daniel answers, asks and answers a very central question for all of God's people for all of time. The question it asks is what anchors and motivates you to obedience? What anchors and motivates your obedience to God? When you seek to obey God and His Word, the commandments and the imperative He lays in front of you, when you seek to live in light of the gospel, or to be faithful and fruitful Christians, when you endeavor to obey God, what is the source or the anchor of your motivation to do that? Well, the book of Daniel opens that question up and answers it through the model and the character of Daniel, his friends, and even, by God's grace, through the kings of foreign nations who come to recognize the sovereignty and the supremacy of our God. What should anchor and motivate our obedience to God must be, Daniel says, the book of Daniel tells us, must be our belief and our trust in God who is sovereign and supreme above all other nations, kings, rulers, and gods. The supremacy of a sovereign God anchored in our minds and in our hearts motivates us to obey that 
God. At any given moment, our obedience to God is in direct proportion to how much we are actually convinced of in that moment that God is sovereign and supreme in our lives. We sin and disobey God. We violate His commands when in that moment we are not convinced that God is supreme and sovereign over all. And the choices we make then reflect that. Perhaps our own desires, our appetites become more supreme or sovereign than God. Or our reputation, our comfort, our security, whatever it may be, in that moment is more supreme, more sovereign than God. But when we seek to be obedient, we do so, or at least we should, not to earn reward or riches or blessing from God as if He owes us because of that obedience, but because of who He is and what He's done. So the supremely sovereign God reveals Himself as such to us through the book of Daniel and the Bible as a whole. And that truth, that revelation, that supremacy and sovereignty and the whole host of other of God's perfections motivates us becomes for us our anchor for the obedience that we render to God. Does that make sense? Don't look anywhere else. Look to God, the supremacy and the sovereignty and His revelation to motivate your obedience to God. That is the central question and answer in the book of Daniel. And he asks that question and answers it through Daniel's life. I'll give you some context before we get into the Word. At this point... Judah and Jerusalem have fallen to Babylonian captivity. They've come. What we've been reading in Jeremiah, the warning that this invader, the army from the north would come, Babylon, they've come at this point. And they've taken over and they've carted off a bunch of people already into Babylon, into exile. And they will, if they haven't already, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and laid siege to the whole place. And at this point, exiles in Babylon are now left distraught and hopeless that their whole identity as God's covenant and chosen people now seem in disarray. What hope do they have to regain their stature in the world, their place and their prominence before the other nations now that they have been taken over by Babylon? And Babylon is a great superpower, greater at this point than Egypt ever was. Nebuchadnezzar, the king here in the book of Daniel, is not just famous because in the Bible, he's been a famous person on the world stage for some time now. He led Babylonia, which is this small, sort of weak nation, to a great and mighty empire, conquering and taking over lands and other nations. And so when we read about the Babylonian captivity now in the book of Daniel, it is really at the height and the majesty and the glory of this empire and its vast array of riches and one of the ways that this would do this is in Babylon, they would want to grow the culture, not just take lands, but they would want to grow and renew and revive Babylonian culture. They would want all people to assimilate and become Babylonians. And so they would take all the riches and the wealth of that nation, both physical and intellectual wealth, bring it back into the homeland and integrate it into their culture, into their nation, into their empire, and build up from it. And this is what was happening in Daniel's day. He's in exile even before Ezekiel, which we saw last week. And he's giving a revelation and a message from God to comfort the other exiles. There's a lot of lament and despair going on in the land because all hope seems lost. Everything that they once considered, their pride and their character and their identity is now gone. And they're distraught and they cry out for help. The book of Daniel serves to be a comfort to exiles. The first thing you need to know then, friends, as we study the book of Daniel, is that though this happens many thousands of years before us today, you and I should consider ourselves as exiles in a land that is not our home. The Apostle Peter tells us this. We are, as Christians, to borrow his wording, elect exiles. We are those chosen by God who has no physical home or dwelling place but are now in a world to which we do not belong. We are part of a greater country, a far country, whose hope is the center of our lives. But we're not there yet. So we too, like Daniel, are exiles in a land that is foreign to us, even hostile to us in our faith, that wants to suppress the truth of the living God in exchange for the lies 
of their own gods, or perhaps stand ourselves up as God himself. But if we recognize, as Daniel teaches us, that God of the Bible is the supreme and sovereign God over all nations, then we will stand as exiles in the midst of such a culture, in the midst of certain circumstances that work against us, with integrity and humility for God's glory. We do this out of obedience to God, not, again, that we may gain blessing or prosperity, but because we recognize God as the true king, Christ, his son, as the ruler of our lives, the captain of our souls. As we submit ourselves to his rule and reign, we motivate ourselves from it in obedience to God. So a couple of notes on the structure of Daniel here if you're taking your own notes, or as you go to read it this week. Daniel can be divided pretty evenly right down the middle. There's 12 chapters, one of the shortest, the shortest of the major prophets, a little longer than most of the minor prophets, hence his inclusion with these latter prophets here. Really, you split it down the middle. The first six chapters are stories about Daniel and his friends and how they are living as exiles in the land. They become favored and have a certain position within the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. And this spans several kings. In fact, we see Daniel as a fairly young man in the beginning of the book in chapter 1. By the time you get to the end of the book, he's an old man, probably in his 70s or 80s, certainly by the time he gets thrown into the lion's den. So this spans decades of his ministry and decades of captivity over time. We'll see later when we go back into Jeremiah that the original plan, as God would say to Jeremiah in chapter 25, that they would be in captivity for 70 years. But later we learn that it takes much longer. This is near the tail end of those 70 years, and Daniel's records and some editor has compiled this to comfort these exiles, the first six chapters of which are these stories about Daniel's faithfulness to God, his obedience to God motivated by God being supreme and sovereign. The second half of the book, chapters 7 to 12, are visions that Daniel then either prophesies or interprets. And these visions concern the future, what God is doing and is about to do or will do with Israel and with the nations and indeed with the whole world at some point in time. So it splits right evenly down the middle, 1 through 6 and 7 through 12. But then when you take a look a little closer, you begin to see a structure and a narrative actually form. You take chapter 1 and you see there's a historical setting in place. And chapter 1 is written entirely in Hebrew, as one might expect in the Old Testament. And this tells us why and where the story takes place. There's the Babylonian captivity. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There's your setting. He's taken over captivity of Jerusalem. And so the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Pillaged and took what he wanted from the temple and brought it to his. And then he says, I want to take some of these young men, I'm bringing them back to Babylon with me, and they're going to serve in my court. And that's where Daniel and his friends come from. So this kind of sets us up for what's happening in the rest of the book. In chapter 1, we see that historical setting and some of the things that Daniel then will be called to do. Then in chapters 2 through 7, have a unique link together. Those who are familiar with the Old Testament way of writing often what's called a chiasm, which is a way that things build on one another to a central point and then come back down, and those points parallel one another. You get this there in chapters 2 through 7. The couple chapters there switch from Hebrew to Aramaic to kind of reference what is being done and said within Babylon. In fact, even some of the names go from Hebrew, like Daniel, to Aramaic. This structure here tells us something. Anytime we see in Hebrew literature this chiasm of sorts, it's meant to emphasize a particular point. That middle structure is the emphasis of those words. And so here we see in this chiasm the same thing. The sovereignty of God on display through the word and the work of Daniel and his ministry as he both stands against culture, but also powerfully works in culture for his good. We get this in a couple ways. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 link together and form the bottom or the base of the chiasm. And this 
really shows us two dreams. One dream from Nebuchadnezzar and one dream from Daniel. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He doesn't know how to interpret it. He doesn't know what it means. He asks all of his people if they can tell him what it means. And they say, yeah, we can do that. Just tell us what the dream is. And he says, no, no, no. I need to know if it's true. I won't tell you what it is. You tell me what it is and what it means, and then I'll reward you. And none of them, of course, could do it. None, of course, but Daniel. Daniel comes and reveals the meaning of the dream to him, which we'll see in just a moment. And in chapter 7, Daniel himself has a vision, himself has a dream, And these dreams reveal that the kingdoms of the nations around them, even Babylon itself, will come and go. Kings will be set and will be taken away. But the kingdom of God will be the greatest and be established forever. So Nebuchadnezzar's statue in chapter 2 is a vision of a statue made of several different kinds of metal. And then a rock, which is not made out of human hands, comes and dashes all of those to pieces, and then that rock falls to the ground and forms a mountain. A strange vision indeed Nebuchadnezzar has, and no one can figure it out. No one knows what it means. Daniel tells them, actually the rock is the Lord who dashes to pieces all of the different kinds of nations that will come after you. And though you are strong, and the nations before it are strong, and the other ones that will come after you are strong, the rock who is God is stronger than all, and his kingdom will be established forever. So as an interpreter, Daniel, much like Joseph, is rewarded for his interpretation. In chapter 7, Daniel also has this vision of four beasts, again, which represent other nations. And there comes one who destroys all of these beasts and sits on the throne with the Son of Man at his right hand. Again, to show that the greatest of the kingdoms is God's, not man's. The greatest of the king is God himself, not any earthly ruler. It will be God and His Son which rule the universe and all kingdoms. That's the central theme of the two dream sequences at the base of that chiasm. As you move up the ladder or in the structure, chapters 3 and chapter 6 correspond with one another. And we see that these are two examples of Daniel's and his friend's refusal to bow down to the corrupt and unrighteous, wicked and idolatrous culture of the day. So, of course, these are famous stories, the Daniel and the lion's den in chapter 6, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of the fiery furnace in chapter 3. Both of these are stories about how God powerfully works both to preserve and to demonstrate His sovereignty over these nations through the character, the obedience, and the steadfastness of these individuals. In chapter 3, we see the story of these three men who refuse to bow down to an idol, to a gold statue of the king. You can imagine thousands of people perhaps bow down before and worship in allegiance to a false god they call king, and these men do not. On the pain of death, they are taken and thrown into a furnace, basically to be cooked and burned alive. But of course, as you know the story, there is a fourth person that one can see in the midst that is with them, and preserves them. They're exalted because of what God's faithfulness does, but God's faithfulness works on their behalf because of their steadfastness. Daniel does the same thing. Certain people try to trick him. They don't like him. He's gained too much favor with the king, and so they try to trap him. They say, King, you need to outlaw any praying of any kind except to you for 30 days, knowing that Daniel prays every day, when and where. And so the king says, that's fine, I'll do that, I guess. And then they go at the appointed time to see Daniel pray, got him. They convince Nebuchadnezzar that he has to die according to the edict. And so they throw them into the lion's den to be torn to peace. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to do this. He prays even and fasts for Daniel. And it's revealed that the very next morning, Daniel stayed all night with the lions whose mouths were shut by God. Preserved. Why? Because of his faithfulness and steadfastness to God and his word. He wouldn't pray to a false god or a false deity, but prayed only to the living God. These refusals show that God's power is there in the midst of his people's obedience, motivated by his sovereignty and by his supremacy, because he is who he is. His motivation and his faithfulness leads to his deliverance. And then the very top of this chiasm, of the structure there in chapters 2 through 7, 
we see four and fives come together next to each other or linked. And this is about the humiliation of kings who are like beasts. And this is to show that the supremacy and the sovereignty of God must be acknowledged or else wrath. So in chapter 4, Daniel's called to interpret another one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. Nebuchadnezzar being the king of Babylon at this time. And the dream is a warning. And so Daniel urges, as he interprets this dream, to, that he must acknowledge, it says in chapter 4, verse 17, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. So God is making it clear in the vision to the king and the interpretation of Daniel to the king that this is about to get bad if you don't acknowledge that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. But he doesn't. He doesn't heed this warning. And so later, in the same chapter, while he's boasting, it says, before the words even finished coming out of his mouth in chapter 30, he says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Before the words even finally fell out of his mouth, he was driven out to the countryside and he became like a beast. He would eat the grass. His hair would grow wild. He lost all rational thought. It wasn't until he finally acknowledged God's supremacy and his sovereignty that he was restored. And listen to what he says in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. He says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say, stay his hand, or say to him, what have you done? God is sovereign and supreme. And the king of one of the greatest nations on earth at the time was driven to insanity and a beast-like living until he finally acknowledged that before God he was nothing. And God restored him. In the very next chapter, in chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar's son, King Belshazzar, he does the same thing his father done, basks in his own glory. His majesty, his fame, he's drinking and reveling over the spoils from, temp from the temple in Jerusalem. The pride and the arrogance surely to incite God's wrath against him. And as he's doing this, he sees the hand of God appear and writes something on the wall. He can't understand what it says or means. And of course, he freaks out and he calls everybody to try to tell him what it means. And no one can. And finally, he says, get Daniel. Daniel will tell me. And of course, Daniel was able to provide its meaning. The meaning was very similar to the same meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that his pride was going to cause his downfall and even the eventually downfall of the whole Babylonian Empire to be taken over and split in two by the Medes and the Persians, as is inevitable. And so that very night, King Belshazzar was killed, presumably by some upstart trying to take over. And both of the accounts of these visions and these beast-like humiliations make plain the fact that God alone is able to do what he wills. That there is none greater than God. No sovereign power, no supreme authority higher than God's. Daniel's interpretation, Daniel's words, the king's visions, all of this makes this abundantly clear as a warning to those who think that they have supremacy and authority over God. They may be great and powerful, and God indeed sets kings in their places and nations and their boundaries. And he allows some to be greater than others, some to take over others. And for whatever reason, in the counsel of his own good and perfect will, he brings some to have great power and influence over others and some to be perhaps forever small and oppressed. But it is God who controls. It is God's word, his will, and his ways. Both accounts make plain the fact that God alone is able to do as he wills and that nations would do well to honor him as supreme. This includes our own nation. That we as citizens must desire that those who are in leadership would not become so prideful and arrogant that they think they are higher and greater than the Lord himself. 
We don't pray for a theocracy. We don't pray for a certain political party to win all the time. We pray that our leaders would be righteous and would rule righteously as we are commanded to in Scripture. We pray because the arrogance of leaders invites the wrath of God. We may see from some time, perhaps not in our own lifetime, but in our children or grandchildren's or however long the Lord decides to tarry, our own nation fall into disrepair and repute, though it may have already. We go on in chapters 8 and 9 from Aramaic back into Hebrew again, and we see a series of visions. Daniel has his own vision of Israel's troubles and this commands him, compels him to pray for God. And we see in chapter 9 this beautiful prayer of hope, of confession, of desire that God would reveal himself. And God does through an angel and tells him actually that things were about to get worse. What was once considered to be only 70 years now would be 70 years of weeks or 490 some odd years in captivity here. Now, whether we take that literal or figurative, we mean it's going to be a very long time and Israel's trouble will not be over. And indeed, Babylon will fall to the Persians and the Persians will be taken by Alexander the Great and the Greeks and eventually the Greeks to the Romans and then we get to the New Testament and we know what happens from that point. The Romans will try to take over and eventually destroy the second temple that was built after the exile and Israel has not had a prominent place on the map in their own temple since. So if you're a Jew trusting in the covenant promises of God, the days of glory are behind you. Even in the rebuilding of the temple after the exile, that temple will never be as glorious on the outside as it was before Solomon's temple. And yet there is a trust and a promise that we are called to still believe. The Jews are still called to believe. The remnant that God is saving are looking not to what things were, but what God will do to make things new again, better again. A more perfect kingdom with a more perfect king. Not the kings of old that led them into this exile in the first place. Certainly not like the kings that are over them in in captivity. But a true king. One who is truly righteous. One who will lead them into victory. One who will establish a kingdom that will last forever. No more captivity. No more idolatry. No more sin. No more ruin. But God and his people dwelling forever in unity. That becomes the new hope and the goal. And they begin to see that God is preparing to bring such a leader. And it's in the exile that the hopes of the Messiah really become to take shape. See, in the beginning, when we read in the books of Moses, and we read about the characters of Abraham, they don't have the same picture of the Messiah that we think they might have as we read the prophets. The idea of messianic prophecy really comes more and more clear as hope becomes more and more desperate. And they realize that it's never going to be a man from their own people, but only someone God himself will provide. And he does. So the longer they go without hope, the longer they go in captivity, the longer they go in sin and rebellion, the clearer it becomes that God himself has to act on their behalf. He has to come. He has to be their king. And so he reverses that bad mistake they made in Samuel, demanding a king for themselves when they wanted Saul. And God said, this was a terrible idea, but let them have it, because one day I will provide a king that they truly desire. In the last couple chapters, in chapters 10 through 12, we talk about this ruler. Daniel talks about the prince that is to come, raised up by God, and there will be them who come to ultimately try to destroy God's people, destroy the temple, destroy the dwelling place, but this prince will come, and he will destroy all those who think they are higher, greater, supreme, and more sovereign than the Lord. This will be the prince who sits on the throne, the son of man at the right hand of the father, whose kingdom has no end. That's the picture Daniel paints for a hopeful people in exile, desperate to cling to some sort of hope, truth, promise. If the temple is destroyed, is God's covenant rendered obsolete? Has God abandoned them? Daniel says, no, God hasn't. He still has a purpose and a plan for his people to build a kingdom, to sit a king on a throne, to rule with his people. He will be their God. They will be his people. There is no end to this kingdom. That day will surely come. That day is not now. So what do we see in Daniel? Well, in Daniel we see and find a God who sits above all earthly kingdoms, sovereign over all nations, powerful even above all creatures of the heavens and the earth more powerful and mighty than the greatest of creatures and nations like Babylon or angels. It is God who is exalted as supreme, as sovereign, 
over all things. These other kings and kingdoms, in comparison, are viewed as ultimately powerless. As Nebuchadnezzar says, that peoples before him are nothing. It is God we find that is the sovereign and supreme of the universe. Now, this truth of God's supreme sovereignty is rooted in two things. It's first, it's rooted in the idea of kingdom, and secondly, in the idea of covenant. And both kingdom and covenant are connected together all throughout Scripture. In chapter 2, verse 44, we see that there is a kingdom that is running through the entire purposes and plans of God. Chapter 2, verse 44 says this, that in those days, or in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another person. So this is Daniel interpreting the king's Nebuchadnezzar's vision and says the, the rock that destroys all these other kingdoms will be the one that has established a kingdom that's never destroyed. The kingdom shall never be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms, all other kingdoms, and bring them to an end, and that kingdom shall stand forever. So the promise of Daniel, the hope and the motivation to a sovereign and a supreme God is rooted in the promise and the purpose of a kingdom and, of course, a king. But it's also rooted in covenant. It's rooted in the purpose and the promise of God to his people that he's made from the very beginning. See, Daniel banks on God doing what he knows God will do, doing what he said he would do. And he prays in chapter 9, verse 4, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He prays to God, remembering and recalling for his own purposes that God is a covenant-keeping God. He made a promise. He will continue to be faithful to it in his own time, in his own way. That those promises will never fail or falter. So he prays to this covenant-keeping God And then later in the same chapter, Daniel receives word of an anointed prince who would come and set things right again, this this Messiah who would come. And this Messiah, this prince is the one, it says in 9 verse 27, who shall make or shall confirm a strong covenant with many. By the time we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus using the same language, the Son of Man, Jesus who come to be a ransom for many, even Isaiah as it looks forward to the suffering servant who is accounted among the the transgressors, who has given his life for many, all of those same things are come together in this one particular anointed prince, rooted in the covenant that he makes with many. He confirms a new and better covenant for a new and better kingdom. So the hope and the promises of the book of Daniel for a, a weary, exiled kingdom in a land that is not their own, and for us today, is to be rooted in a covenant that produces a kingdom that is our hope, so that we can obey and give ourselves to the Lord. But what do we do with this? What do we do with the book of Daniel who teaches us that we can trust in a supremely sovereign God who has made covenant with us and who's establishing a kingdom now among us? Well, we take a couple things, three, really, because God is supremely sovereign. First, we take then that God is faithful and that his faithful people can thrive in a hostile world. That God's faithful people can thrive in a hostile world. You can imagine Daniel's and the other exiles' dismay as they're taken in, carted off to Babylonia. And it's a completely different world. Not only do they have and worship false gods and temples all around, but there's idolatry, decadence, and suppression and oppression and justice and wickedness in their face every day. They're made to work as slaves or left to be oppressed. And yet we see in the book of Daniel and his own life and ministry and among the others there that God's faithful can thrive in a hostile world. And I say thrive and not simply survive. It's not simply waiting until God comes and makes things better again but that we can actually grow and prosper as Christians, as God's faithful despite a world that might be hostile to us. Which means, friends, today, as you go into your work, into the culture, into your communities, even into your neighborhoods, and you you face hostility towards your faith, you feel oppression and persecution in various forms, or even as you link arms in prayer with brothers and sisters around the world who are facing very real persecution, 
you know that they can thrive and prosper in their faith despite the hostility against them. And they can do this in two ways. They can do this without fear. Go back to chapter 1 and just look at the, at the example that's set here, the fearlessness or the conviction that they have before the Lord. In verse 5 of chapter 1, it says that the king assigned to them this people that they had brought into his court to serve and work. The king assigned to them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. He wants to give them some food and a diet. He doesn't want skinny, gross-looking orphaned kids around him. He wants them fed and well-dressed. The problem is that under Jewish law, they had certain dietary restrictions, and they couldn't eat certain things like shellfish and pork. But this was part of the diet that they had. And so he assigned them this diet, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Meshiel, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them the names Daniel, which he called Belziar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved, verse 8, he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned for you food and drink. Why should he see that you are in this condition or in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? But Daniel said to the steward of the chief of the eunuchs who assigned over him, test them. We'll see who's in better shape, basically, by the end of this. And he was proven right because of the faithfulness and the favor he had with the Lord. What's happening here is that Daniel was able to fearlessly, even at great pains, it's dangerous to be in the court of the king and to defy an order and to say no to what God has commanded, in this point, the diet. But because he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, but resolved to keep the law as he knew it and as it was taught to him, he was prosperous before the Lord. But we can also be faithful and thrive in a hostile world, not just without fear, but with confidence. Go to chapter 3 and look in verse 15. Again, the more famous, perhaps, of the stories of the book of Daniel. Now, if you are ready, the command goes, to hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. If you are ready to hear that and fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Such confidence they have in their God before the mightiest person on earth. But notice in verse 18, but even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So this is confidence to be able to stand and speak truth to power, knowing full well that they would be thrown into fire and burned. They had confidence that God would stand for them. But they even had confidence that if God did not, that they were doing what was needed and right. He knows this, and we have confidence as exiles that we can be faithful in a hostile world because he goes with us. We continue to read. It says that he is thrown into, in verse 19, filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against them. And he ordered the furnace to be heated even seven times more than it was already usually heated. So they get thrown into them. And then, look in verse 22. The king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. And the king was astonished and rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast in three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the, tree, the king, True, O king, we did. But he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the sun of the gods. And the power of standing before a mighty man of God means that you are indeed 
untouched and unscathed by the pain and the enemy has to offer. That is, as one scripture would put it, if God is for us, who can be against us? God goes with us, and in Christ has even gone before us. For Christ is the one who has plunged himself into the fiery furnace. He is the one who has plunged himself into darkness and to sin, though he himself had not sinned, but becomes sin, our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, God's faithful Christians today can thrive as Christians in a world, no matter how hostile it is to their faith. As Jesus tells the disciples, do not be afraid and fear those who can kill and throw your body into the furnace, but fear him who can both kill and destroy the soul and the body. What can be taken from you that God does not grant? What is the boundary of life that God himself does not draw? Friends, the church today suffers from a lack of Christians whose convictions are stronger than their fears. We go out several times a day and make decisions of whether or not we will compromise in small and in large ways whether we will be faithful to God's word. I'm not talking about the gray areas, about maybe this is right, maybe this is wrong, there's a different opinion, but in areas we know that before God is compromising on biblical truth, compromising on integrity of the gospel, And yet to be more relevant or to be more liked or to be more successful or to simply be more comfortable, we make concessions often in small ways and at times in much larger ways because the fear we have before that decision is often greater than our conviction to accept whatever may come. If that's you this morning, you must turn to God, repent of your convictionless attitude and pray that God would strengthen you in your faith root you more deeply in those convictions so that when the fear of anxiety, of hurt, harm, death, ostracism, suffering, whatever it may be, no longer stronger than the convictions that you have in God's supremacy and sovereignty. You, O faithful exile, must ask yourself, to whom do you belong, Christ or Babylon? These three in Daniel, they knew they belonged to Christ. They knew that Babylon belonged to God. And so they were willing to die, even for that truth. So we learn that God is sovereign, and because He is sovereign, God's faithful can survive and even thrive in the midst of a hostile world. But secondly, we learn that every kingdom and nation will be brought low and ultimately will serve God. Just a couple of verses that show us this. Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He's the one in control. He's the one in charge. Nebuchadnezzar is Nebuchadnezzar because God is God. In Daniel chapter 7, later in his own vision, as he understands the power, the supremacy, and the sovereignty of God, Chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, he says, As I looked, thrones were placed in his vision, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court of God sat in judgment, and the books were opened. That is the books of his judgment. Again in chapter 7, verse 27, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve God and obey him. So the truth is in the book of Daniel, not only that those who are convinced of God's supremacy and sovereignty can find ways to thrive and motivate themselves to obedience despite a hostile world, but that even the world around them, the culture, and other nations will all come to serve God themselves because he is sovereign. But lastly, this is the most important, that God will establish a better kingdom as the true home for his people. Jerusalem no longer becomes the epicenter of God's people Babylon no longer becomes the ruling nation over God's people. But it will be God and His kingdom which will be better 
and a true home for his people. Go to the very end of the book in chapter 12, and we'll end here. We know that this better kingdom will come when God himself restores and comes again. In the first three verses of chapter 12, this is what we read. At that time, that is at the end of the days, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since and no nation has had till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So God will come again, he's told. His people will be ushered into greatness, prosperity, and restoration. And the enemies of God, the nations of injustice and captivity and oppression, they will be judged. Those who are in charge of the wickedness and the oppression of God's people, those who are in rebellion against God, they will be consigned to everlasting contempt. But those who have trusted God, when He comes again to judge both the living and the dead, will receive their greater reward. We continue to see that their reward is their eternal place in peace with God. Look in the last verse, verse 13 of chapter 12. It says, Daniel, I can't tell you everything, but trust this. Go on your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. This is the same language he uses elsewhere as those who will come to their everlasting place of eternal work with God. They are given to rest because God is king. The kingdom is established in peace, prosperity, and security. And so he will come again and his people will have their reward. Their hope becomes manifest in the very person of God incarnate. And so what does the world truly need from us as Christians, as exiles, and a culture increasingly hostile to it and to us? The world needs us to point them to a just and righteous king more sovereign and supreme than anyone else in any nation on this earth. The world needs us to point them to the reality of the king of kings who will rule in peace, whose kingdom is established over the rule in the hearts of men today, established forever who will have no end. Presidents come and go, senators come and go, nations come and go, kingdoms will rise and fall, but the word of the Lord and his kingdom will always remain. So in Daniel chapter 7, in his vision of one who would come and destroy all nations and establish the eternal kingdom, he says in chapter 7, verses 13, I saw in my vision, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like one Son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him, this Son of man before the ancient of days, that's the Lord most high, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom, it shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Or in Philippians chapter 2, it is the name that has been given above all names. At that name, every knee and tongue shall bow and confess. He has been given all dominion. This is Christ, our King. So friends, as you navigate through a world increasingly hostile to your faith, to you as a Christian, take a page out of the book of Daniel and be convinced and convicted of the worth and supremacy of God and Christ, your King, above all. And let that be the source and anchor of your motivation to obey God, despite what it might cost you. The promise in the book of Daniel is this, that if you are faithful and steadfast to a sovereign God, He will reward and prosper you. Not as a promise of blessing, not as earthly prosperity. You may indeed be thrown into a fiery furnace and there is no one there to unbound you. But the promise is that you will receive your reward and your eternal rest with Christ. And He will come again and judge and vindicate 
you and his people. And that's the hope of the church today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us through the prophet Daniel. There's much we can continue to learn and understand from the book, but I pray, God, that the few short minutes we've had together is sufficient to begin to lead us to trust you, to affirm the sovereignty and the supremacy of your rule and the person and the work of your son, Jesus, who sits at your right hand, who even now rules over the nations. And we confess and confirm him as our king and we as his people, that we have no home here on earth, but that one day he will return. He will raise the dead and gather his people to himself. He will judge the world. And those who have rebelled against him and oppressed his people will receive their reward, their punishment and condemnation. But for us who trust and work to be by your grace steadfast to our sovereign God, that we will receive the reward of the blessing of eternity with him, to be co-heirs, ruling in a kingdom established in a covenant made in his blood. We're thankful for your kindness to include us in such a kingdom as we trust in this prince, in our king, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.